helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. Welcome to DAU Podcast. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Mr. Brent Ingraham in this continuing series of talks about the DOD Coronavirus Task Force, or the JADIF. Brent Ingraham is the executive director of the Joint Rapid Acquisition Cell, or JRAC, within the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. He is responsible for monitoring the progress and completion of actions to satisfy urgent Operational Needs, or UONs, identified by the combatant commands. I'm looking forward to learning more about what that means precisely, but Mr. Ingraham, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you. May I call you Brent today? Absolutely. Please do. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Every story has a beginning. As this crisis came upon us, we had this dawning awareness that it was something impacting the world. And wherever we were, all of us were kind of springing into action or reacting in some way. Let me ask, though, what is your role in the department as the JRAC director? So I would define my role as the 911 phone call for the combatant commanders to deliver gear that they urgently need for the warfighter that's in the battlefield today or on the battlefield today. We deliver whatever the urgent capability needs are from across all domains. So it could be something for ground support forces, air, space, sea, cyber. We cross all the domains to provide that urgent capability that uh, they need to uh, fight tonight, not tomorrow. So you literally are equipping the warfighter anytime, anywhere. You're that 911 call. That is exactly what the JRAC does. We are responsible for that for the department to make sure that that capability gets there tonight uh, of whatever that capability may be. Now, were you associated with JADIF in any capacity before discussions emerged to make it a permanent capability? I was not. Uh, I was not. I was well aware of it, uh, you know, being within the ANS organization, uh, working closely with, uh, you know, Stacey Cummings uh, and some of the other JADF members on other urgent operational needs that we were doing for the department, but nothing specifically for the COVID-19 mission that directly related to what, what their mission was. Uh, we did have a number of urgent COVID operational needs that we were that we were meeting for the combat commanders from testing and diagnostics capabilities within the field. And so I had some interaction uh, with Stacey Cummings uh, as we figured out the quickest and most responsive way to get the combat commanders that capability to protect the forces in the field. Now, how did it come about that there was a need to establish an enduring capability for JADF-like functions? So I would say the JADF, you know, by its definition as a task force, was intended to be temporary in nature. It was established to provide that rapid capability to the interagency, HHS and FEMA, to help them with the core mission, support the nation, and provide the nation with that capability to combat this pandemic. Why was it aligned with the JRAC? 
So when you look at the, what that mission was, which was to provide an urgent capability to the nation, to the interagency, that's exactly what the JREP does today for the warfighter. We provide that urgent capability. So in this term, you know, using those authorities we have in the department already to execute the rapid mission to build that capability, the JADF was using a lot of those same kind of authorities to execute its mission for HHS, FEMA, and the interagency. So it was a perfect alignment of, of what the JRAC actually does for the warfighter. We are now just doing for the nation. Right. It's fundamentally the same thing. You're getting critical resources to where they are needed. This is just kind of a tweak in the context of COVID and now the new need for equipment and PPE and all those kinds of things. Yep, right. For the for the individuals of this nation versus, you know, the warfighter that's in an operational zone. Now, what is DA2 and, and what is its mission? So, so DA2 stands for Defense Assisted Acquisition. So as we look at what the Joint Acquisition Task Force was, it really, we summarize that into it's really Defense Assisted Acquisition using Department of Defense's acquisition resources as the bench to support uh, HHS and FEMA in these pandemic, you know, when these pandemics or national emergencies arise, that we've got a kind of a depth and bench. We've got, I wouldn't say other authorities, because uh, we all have all have to follow by the FAR, Federal Acquisition Resource Guide. Uh, but we have a couple hundred years of knowledge of how to do this acquisition capability uh, and delivery capability quickly. And so that speed in a time of need is was critical. And that's really what, what DA2 is to do, is to provide that enduring resource to the interagency for any future assisted acquisition requirements they have in the time of an, you know, an emergent or in a future pandemic. Now, you mentioned you don't have other authorities, but we do hear a lot about other transaction authorities, OTAs. Is there a distinction between that and what you were just describing? The Department does not have, uh, the Department of Defense does not have additional authorities that HHS or FEMA has. We have the same authorities, just we have the expertise of using those authorities rapidly uh, to be able to execute the mission based on our expertise of what we do in the JRAC for the warfighter. Really, what you're doing is your expertise is applying those acquisition tools of the trade to have this happen rapidly. So again, back to the 911 call, you can respond and, and deliver quickly. Yeah, so it, it we, you know, we use all the tools, all the acquisition tools in the toolbox, right? So whether uh, if you look at the adapted acquisition framework, which falls you know under there, the urgent operational capability is really that initial pathway. It's that urgent capability pathway where we have to deliver something to the warfighter within two years. And so that is where we use every leverage that we have, whether we look at procuring a commercial item and then modifying it, or we're procuring something unique and we use OTA type authorities or uh, any of those tools to rapidly get that capability downrange. We did similar things for HHS and FEMA in this case, where we used all the tools. We used tools like the commercial solutions opening, which is an authority provided in 2018 and the NDAA that allows us to 
get after working with kind of non-traditional DOD companies, which in this mission uh, that we're doing for HHS and FEMA are non-traditional DOD companies that we're working with to provide those unique medical capabilities that HHS and FEMA in the nation need right now. Right. That helps answer that question a moment ago. OTAs are just one more tool in the toolbox where I was getting hung up on the semantics of authorities and other authorities. So when we talk about DA2 and JADF, it's as if one picks up where the other leaves off. Maybe you could tell us how has DA2 absorbed those roles of JADF and how does that function as we look forward? That is exactly what has occurred. Uh, you know, the, the Joint Acquisition Task Force stood down as the DA2 stood up. And the DA2 really, their mission was to kind of streamline those JADF operations in line with HHS evolving acquisition needs. This kind of approach, we kind of streamlined uh, the number of product leads to four really focused areas. So personal protective equipment, expanded in the testing and diagnostics areas, pharmaceuticals, and then vaccine and delivery, vaccine deliveries and other awards. So those are kind of in the four areas we've expanded into with still the main focus of meeting the HHS's need of making sure there's a 90-day supply in the strategic national stockpile and that the industrial-based expansion efforts continue to evolve so that there is onshore U.S. capability to produce these items. Yeah, that's a wonderful theme that's been coming out of these discussions is how we have onshored this manufacturing capability, which is so important to our national security. It it is. It's extremely important for national security. And so to give you some numbers, uh, just uh, rough numbers as an example of, of the mission, you know, up until the JADF was stood down, I believe they executed about uh, 850 million-ish round-bottom part numbers in industrial-based expansion. To date, DA2, over the last three months, has executed approximately about 1.2 billion in industrial-based expansion. So we took the JADF efforts and we have uh, it has not slowed down. We have not streamlined. That work is not dying off. We've actually expanded our interaction with HHS and continuing to help them develop their capabilities and meet their needs, especially as we've seen, you know, a second and third wave of the pandemic and an increase for need of critical items, uh, you know, in the PPE testing and diagnostics and pharmaceutical uh, requirements for the nation. My quick fuzzy math tells me that that's about a 50% increase. It's exactly what it's it's about, about a 50% increase with anticipation of ongoing efforts that believe we will probably between now and February award close to another billion dollars worth of efforts to that. That's an astounding anecdote. Now, if we could talk a little bit about just organizationally or structurally what things look like, can you discuss what the DA2 cell will look like from an organizational perspective? And I'm I'm talking the core group and the assignments, et cetera. So DA2 will be a very small uh, permanent cell at the end of the day for ANS uh, with a focus of making sure 
the policy, the interagency agreements, the baseline funding agreements, the accounts are in place so that as a national need arises, we can quickly flip the switch and get back to producing whatever that capability is. So that is going to be the core mission at the end of the day for DA2. Between now and then, there are still a number of needs that this pandemic has not slowed down in age, especially if you look at the numbers, uh, both of uh, you know the infection rates, along with the hospitalization and uh, rates that we are seeing today versus what we were seeing back in March. Uh, you can see we haven't slowed down any. In fact, those, all those increases are requiring many more needs for HHS, which is why you're seeing still the expansion and the, the dollar numbers that we're still executing for them. So we will, the organization perspective will maintain this, the kind of the same size as the JATF was. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, somewhere around 150 people uh, across the department supporting this effort, mostly full-time to execute these contracts and assisted acquisition projects for HHS with a goal that as we start to meet the needs, fill the strategic national stock, we will be able to ramp down to that kind of enduring capability of making sure everything's in place for that next emergency when we would need to flip the switch and ramp back up. Yeah, so I think a key that one of the purposes of having the cell is it's very important to have that in place to maintain different connections and relationships that were set up so that you can flip that switch. Is that correct? That is correct. So, you know, and part of the lessons learned uh, of standing up the JADA and as we started to streamline these efforts within the, within the, the DA2 cell is making sure that the interagency agreements, the funding agreements, the mechanisms, the paperwork required to be able to transfer money from HHS or FEMA to DOD to go execute, those those sort of agreements are in place and approved uh, because some of those things can, can be the roadblocks that you have to, and the hurdles you have to get over uh, to be able to then execute quickly is just getting, you know, certified funds in place so that contracting officers can release contracts against those funds. Those sort of mechanisms have to be established. And that's really kind of the focus of a long-term DA2 is making sure those policies and procedures are in place so we don't have to relearn that for the next emergency. Right. You take that administrative ramp up out of the way by just maintaining it. Maintaining it and maintaining it for, for if you think about this in terms of emergencies, for things that maybe go beyond pandemics, right? Maybe it's a, it is a hurricane. And so now you're buying lifeboats versus medical supplies. Um, it's to make sure that we have the right, all the right pieces in place across the entire department to execute whatever the mission may be. Well, God forbid whatever happens, but the problem I know with this pandemic is that you had the conundrum of trying to get resources where 
they were scarce anywhere you looked. So hopefully the efficiency you've gained by having that cell in place, plus maybe the character of a future disaster being more localized will mean just very, very quick response from your side to that. Now, you've touched on a couple of things in that answer about the cell structure of the DA2 and kind of that dynamic ability to grow or contract. I just I did want to ask you though, how does the DA2 compare to the JADF structure and and what are the strategies when you need to suddenly scale in response to something? So from a structure in place, uh, you know, from a from an office structure, JADF to DA2 is is pretty equivalent today because of the amount of efforts that were still ongoing efforts that we're still doing. Going forward, that would ramp down. But where this brings the ability to scale at speed when necessary comes into play is the relationships that JRAC already has with the services. So you know, the JADF relied heavily on acquisition experts from across the acquisition, you know, the DoD acquisition enterprise across all of the services to come and support this effort. Definitely not experts, a lot of them not experts in, you know, PPE or mass or a certain area, uh, but they were brought in, learned it quickly, but they had the acquisition background to be able to do solid acquisition strategies and execute quickly. The JRAC, because we touch multiple products, we touch uh, across the entire envelope of things that the Department of Defense is involved with. We have a lot of contacts out there across the acquisition community, across all of the spectrums that we're working in that allows us to, to scale it at speed by knowing where those resources are, knowing, uh, having a, a good perspective of what's already being done in this kind of, in some of those spaces. Uh, that we could, uh, that we can pull at and, and again, rely on the deep bench we have across the services and our great acquisition professionals in the Department of Defense that can come to uh, the need of the nation. Outstanding. Now, looking forward, what activities do you anticipate engaging in that the HHS may ask for in response to the continuing unfolding of the pandemic? So it's very great. We've, we've had a lot of engagements with uh, HHS as we start to talk about how we transition some of these activities back to HHS. So we're engaged in a number of activities, not only in continuing to procure needed items for the strategic national stockpile, but we're expanding that a little bit beyond testing and diagnostics has been a big ramp up recently. Why it's great, and I love the excitement of everyone from everyone, and Operation Warp Speed has done an amazing job getting a vaccine ready, working uh, with industry to get vaccines ready and get out there. Uh, Testing and diagnostics are going to still be critical going forward so that we can understand, give that capability, or we can provide a capability to to the nation to be able to test not only at home or point of care and not wait for three, four, five, seven days for a response to come back for a test. So we are really focused on helping HHS right now in developing and uh, executing new unique tools to get after more rapid testing, 
that's more available to the public at scale quicker than what is available today. So that is one of the areas we're continuing and and really pushing forward over the next couple of months to continue to invest in for them as we look at uh, expanding that industrial base. We also are going forward looking at how we, as I talked a little bit about transition, looking at how we can help HHS take on some of these tasks as they transition this back. So as we start to roll out of a pandemic, how can HHS start to take on these activities and we can allow our defense acquisition experts to get back to doing them to, to execute. And so we are doing things like providing an acquisition training, doing a lot of left seat, right seat training. We're having them come sit with us within the department, bringing some HHS people into the department so they can see how we work and operate, and then providing them with a lot of our procedures, processes, and tools that we use so they can implement those into their processes and make sure that they're effective uh, and ready to take on this mission going forward. Right. So it sounds like you're, in, in addition to sort of onboarding them into the process you maintain in parallel of course the the capability and they both run on their own tracks as needed to support or until one transitions to the other is that a good way to say it it is we will continue to we will continue to push forward not only with providing them the gear and the, the capabilities they need but to provide them the the training and tools and help them integrate them into their processes so that they're capable of executing at uh, at these kind of levels going forward as well. Now, as we're recording, the big headlines right now are vaccines and the distribution of vaccines. Did your work support and play into what we're seeing unfold now? So it, it does in the background. Uh, so nothing uh, OWS deserves a tremendous amount of, of praise for what they've been able to execute and get the vaccines ready to go. What the what DA2 has done in the background is we have been filling the strategic national supply. So as an example, all of the syringes that are being shipped with the vaccine came out of the strategic national supply. So while we're not directly providing them to us, we provide them to HHS through the strategic supply. They get redistributed out of the SNS to OWS to build into the kits that go with the vaccine. So you are a part of that deployment, using the supply, restocking the national supply, I understand. Now, as you look back, I know this was a crisis that everyone got thrown into. I'm sure it wasn't smooth riding the whole time. What lessons learned would you like to convey today? So I think a few of the lessons learned that I have taken away from this has been a the, the importance of the relationships between the departments so that in the time of a crisis, there is the ability to reach out to your counterpart and ask for help when help is needed. And uh, I think all of the agencies are willing to support one another in those times of crisis, but having those relationships and maintaining those relationships will be critical going forward. I think additional pieces uh, that from learning from this, uh, making sure that up front we are working side by side versus just 
doing, right? So we had uh, a lot of times where we just jumped in and helped and didn't take the time while we were doing it to make sure we helped train our counterparts along the way or had them, uh, you know, tied closer to this along the way to make sure that we were executing. So I think uh, going forward, it's critical for the agents, the interagencies to be engaged in working side by side to resolve the problems versus a single agency taking the lead. That interaction allows some of these lessons learned, best practices, those sort of things to be learned while you're going through versus uh, at the end of this you know, year-long event or longer, we are now having to spend a lot of that time kind of reliving, reteaching uh, some of the things that we did and how we did them and what are those acquisition tools versus making sure that the, our partners were engaged and embedded with us when we were doing those yeah, it really was a partnership. And I think what I'm also hearing in there is there's almost like a mentor-mentee dynamic where rather than just jumping in and doing it without training, you know, sort of uh, giving a fish and teaching to fish kind of a thing, you also were bringing up other agencies to be able to do the work themselves eventually. Is is that what what, what you were trying to bring across? Yeah, so exactly what I'm trying to bring across. Uh, we we need to make sure that we are we are training the other agencies on some of the techniques and tools we use to efficiently execute the acquisition mission, while making sure you know at speed of relevance we're actually getting the capability to the nation. Um, and so that's always that's a challenge, but that's where uh, making sure that we are linked on not only requirements. But funding and execution plans will will be beneficial. Yeah, it's a tough thing to do when you know the urgency. The, there's that tyranny of the urgent, where it's just quicker, easier to do it than to show it. But to have kind of both of those dynamics going is very, very important for the just the future sustainment of things. So I would say that's the one thing. That's where the the kind of maintaining those interagency relationships and building. Best word I can use today would be trust. I would say uh, between the two between the two organizations to execute on the critical mission is really the what has been built up. First, starting with what Stacy Cummings did with the JADF, what we've continued on with DA2 is the trust to know that we've got each other's backs in this. Absolutely, yeah. The trust is the the glue that holds it all together. Now, looking forward in light of everything you've been sharing, what are the biggest challenges and opportunities for DA2, as well as the department as a whole, as you look to acquisition assistance in the future? The challenge for DA2 will be that awareness going forward as we get the vaccine out there, we start to close out this pandemic, whenever that may be. I, I suspect that, that we will be at this for for still some time yet until, you know, vaccines are completely out there and we get this pandemic behind us. You know, it could be some number of years before there is another pandemic like this or another national emergency that, that DA2 needs to flip that switch, turn back on and go execute. And so the, the challenge is 
maintaining those relationships, maintaining that, I'm going to call it the playbook, the processes internal to the department as we get focused on whatever the next critical DOD mission is, that we don't forget how to execute this quickly when that need arises. And if that need is 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 100 years, how do we make sure that all of the processes and procedures that we that we've established today stay relevant if they're not being exercised? Right. It's a readiness posture that has been honed and sharpened. And just bringing that forward is key. Maintaining that is key. So that that is probably the biggest challenge we will have as we look to, to the future. You know, we will continue to rely on uh, a JRAC work of supplying those urgent capabilities to warfighter. That problem is not going to go away, right? Our, we have uh, either urgent or emergent needs that come up as incidents around the world require us to posture and be ready and prepared from the Department of Defense. The, the JRAC will continue to supply whatever those capabilities are needed to make sure, make sure we can maintain that posture going forward. So it's making sure that the DA2 piece of the JRAC can maintain that posture for the emergency. We began this discussion with the metaphor of calling 911. I think it's a good way to close because everything we've discussed just leads us back to that feeling that when there's an emergency, we want to be able to call for help and know that it can come. And your efforts this year have assured us that we can do that more rapidly, more efficiently, and have that interagency coordination to really pull it off in a, an efficient manner. My guest today has been Brent Ingraham. I want to thank you, sir, for your time today and for your service during this whole episode during 2020 and beyond, it seems. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. It is great to be able to, to talk a little bit about the, the great things that you know the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Sustainment did to rapidly respond to the, uh, you know, to answer that 911 call to the interagency by standing up the JADF and then, you know, to transition that to the DA2, which will maintain that capability, keep that telephone line open for whenever that future need comes. I think it's just important to realize that the mission hasn't stopped. We are still in the heat of battle right now with providing millions of dollars worth of industrial base expansion and onshoring needs to make sure that the nation has what they what they need to get us through the remainder of this pandemic, however long that may last, and that uh, you know we are putting the tools and the processes in place to make sure we will be there for the next pandemic or emergency that comes around the corner. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. Well, thank you for coming and sharing your story. Thank you so much for your time today, Brent. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.